going to be in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there. If you have an app on your phone, you can turn there as well. Um, I usually don't uh, make a lot of insistence on following along. You don't have to do that, but today's passage is really, really, really long. And we're going to work through all of it together. So I want to invite you to have it in front of you if you can. So Acts is in the New Testament, which is the last third of the Bible. You have the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church, the work of the apostles written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we're in chapter 7, or right, starting at the end of, verse, of uh, chapter 6. And uh, I, <clears throat> before we read, I wonder what would I have to say to you right now from the pulpit that would get me fired? What is it what, that I would have to say for just somebody to stand up and demand that the leadership of Redeemer fire me immediately. Or for someone to find the breaker box and cut the power to the room. I could still keep going, though, if that, was, if that happened. Is there anything that I could say that would make you fire me right now? Um, or cut the power? When I was in high school... Um, I was not a religious person. I did not go to church over a person of faith. In fact, I um, thought that people that did stuff like this were foolish, uh, weak, couldn't deal with your own problems, so you had to go put your problems on Jesus, and very condescending um, toward religious people. And so um, we had lived in South Florida, my mom and I, and we moved back to middle Georgia where it was a very different religious environment, as you could imagine, a lot of folks in the church. And so I made some friends um, that hung out at a Christian coffee shop, okay? And they were having, they used to have shows there, we'd go see like punk rock shows there. And one night I put together some friends I was playing in a band with and we played at the Christian coffee shop. And we selected a set of songs that were explicitly intended to mock uh, Christians. And we played uh, Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar, made it all the way through. And then we, um, in my head this story is funnier, but I don't, and I'm realizing that I'm me and not you. Um, uh, I also realized that while the story is funny, it's also so foolish. But we played, uh, a song by Nine Inch Nails called Heresy. And the chorus of Heresy, it goes, God is dead and no one cares. If there is a hell, I'll see you there. Okay. And so we were playing Heresy. And about halfway through, uh, the power went out. Because someone was like, and you're done. And they found the breaker and they flipped the, the switch. Actually, a friend of mine that ended up being part of my faith journey. They cut the power. Stephen, who is, um, we're going to learn about it in this chapter, was one of the first ever deacons in the church. And he preaches a sermon here that doesn't just get him fired or get the, the lights turned off on him. He preaches a sermon that gets him murdered. 
on the spot, lynched, you might say. So I'm going to start in Acts chapter 6, and uh, we're just going to walk through this passage together, and I hope that it doesn't take an hour and a half, but it might. This is the word of the living God. And Stephen, starting in verse 8, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with, with which he was speaking. They couldn't beat him in an argument. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest, the man who's in charge of all this, said, Are these things so? So just pause. These religious leaders are bringing this man, Stephen, who has done all these amazing signs and wonders, they bring him up on charges. And the charges are simply that he is blaspheming against Moses and God. See, what was really important to this group of folks was their lands, the place that they lived, still even today called the Holy Land, and the law that God had given to them of how they should live and how they should follow God. And they built this huge temple where God's presence was supposed to be. And they're saying this man is speaking against this land and against this law, and he's saying that this Jesus will destroy our temple and change our religious way of life. Stephen is saying that Jesus will, is threatening all that we hold dear. And in response, what Stephen does is he doesn't just tell them about the resurrection. He tells them the stories. It's funny, when they, when they look at his face, his face looks like an angel. I was in Ulta yesterday buying some products for myself, as one does on a Saturday morning. And there are a lot of products promising to give you a glow in Ulta, so I noticed. But Stephen had the ultimate glow. He had that angelic glow that he had seen God. 
And Stephen couldn't help but to tell them, to take this opportunity to tell them the old stories. And neither can I. I want to tell these stories and walk through them with y'all. Because like the daffodils that spring up in this time of year and they look like they come out of nowhere, Jesus looks like he came out of nowhere. But the bulb was always there. So what I want to do is read Acts chapter 7 nice and slow. Because it's important for us to get it straight. And this is going to require our attention. I know it's hard. So if you start to drift off, just gently drift back. Stephen said, starting in verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. God has done this thing. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Talking about the place where they are, the Holy Land. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, meaning he belongs to God's people. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs, who were the heads of all the 12 tribes of Israel. Now listen up, you're going to start to catch what he's saying as we walk through this. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, his brothers are jealous of him, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, Joseph's father, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. 
he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a, son, a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Okay, now they're in Egypt. God's people are there. But as the time of the promise drew near, of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, just like God said. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. Moses, the one y'all think that I'm speaking against and blaspheming about. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. This is where Stephen starts to turn up the heat a little bit. When he was 40 years old, it came into Moses' heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He killed an Egyptian that was beating an Israelite. Now listen, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? That would be God, but do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 more years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an important place, it turns out, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham. Remember him? And of Isaac. And of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And we hit that two weeks ago, so you can go find it later. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. 
And here we go, Stephen, turn it up a little bit. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This rejected man. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Talking about Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. You can imagine him looking at these religious leaders. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Moses' brother, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, who was a cruel god, and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness, witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And this is where he comes down. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands like this temple. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things. Now, that was a long reading and a long sermon from Stephen. What is he saying? He's saying that for a couple of thousand years, God showed up for his people again and again and again. He gave them promises. He gave them a land. He gave them everything they needed to take possession of that land. He provided rescuer after rescuer after rescuer. And he provided redeemer 
after Redeemer after Redeemer. He gave his law from an angel to Moses. He gave them kings. And for thousands of years, again and again and again, his people resisted him and rejected him. Rejected his land, rejected his promises, rejected his rescuers, rejected his redeemers and his prophets, rejected his law and tried to contain him in a temple. And in case Stephen is being too subtle in his application of the story, this is what he says, you stiff necked people. It's like he's telling a story and he's like, you know what? I'm going to talk straight to you all. He says, you stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked meaning you ever like walking a dog that like no matter like if you pull its collar, it won't go. It's always going to go in one direction. Stiff-necked means that you won't let God lead you. You just go where you want to go. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. FYI, every single person listening to him is circumcised. They have this mark on their body that they belong to God. But he says, not in your heart, not in your ears. And then he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. We avoid the word always in our home because it's a shaming term. So you don't be like, you always forget to shut the door. Because it means that then you're defined by this thing that you always do. So we don't use always in our house. Stephen's cool with it. Stephen's like, shame, baby, shame. (laughs) You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. He's like, tell me again how important the law is. Because you don't keep it. Tell me again how I should not blaspheme against these holy people that you killed. What he's saying is, you have received everything from God, and you have hidden from God behind it. You have put Moses and the law and the prophets in the temple between you and God. You take Moses and the law and the temple and the Holy Lamb and you barricade yourselves against knowing God and finding life in him. If you've ever seen Les Miserables on Broadway, you know there's a barricade. And throughout the story, the barricade is built. When Pink Floyd was on tour for the, uh, the wall tour, they would build up a wall in front of the stage, and then David Gilmore played the solo for Comfortably Numb on top, and then the wall came crashing down. What he's saying is that you have built a wall between you and God, and you used everything that God gave you. Now here's a question for us, because I only got a couple minutes left. What if you only had one choice in life? And the choice was that you could have the life that you always wanted and expected. The family, the career, 
the church, the comfort, the traditions, all that stuff. Or you could have God. And even as I'm saying that, that's not easy for me to say because I know it's true. That is our only choice in life. We can have it our way according to our terms or we can have God. Because we all have a list like Stephen's, right? Of the ways again and again and again that God has shown up. And the question is, have have all those things that God has done, have they led us to him? Or is he just the deliverer of every good and perfect gift? The world in the past week and a half has been totally transformed by the people of Ukraine. Nobody saw that coming like a month ago, I don't think. As a foreign leader indiscriminately bombs their apartment buildings and power plants and schools and hospitals and shoots people that are fleeing, they have had a choice. Escape to safety or fight for their freedom. And their courage, even as millions have fled, hundreds of thousands have returned to Ukraine to fight. And their courage has upended long-standing foreign policy in Europe and in the U.S., is reshaped the world order because they have had a choice between safety and freedom. And they have chosen freedom, which will almost certainly cost all of them their lives. And we see that and say, there is something that is real and true and draws me in that decision. What if their choice is our choice too? Safety or freedom? I mean, isn't that what Jesus means when he says to us a beautiful invitation, but that just totally screws up our life? Whoever tries to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. He means that, right? He is offering us life. But this isn't the end of the story. I've got to read the last section before I run out of time. These religious leaders are seething. They're angry. Maybe they're mad enough to kill Stephen. But what he does next seals his fate. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. You ever get so mad you grind? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that's what did it. He saw Jesus. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Call that foreshadowing. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, as stones rained down on him, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. If you were checked out, check back in. What got Stephen murdered was not that he called these people hypocrites, not that he exposed their false life. It wasn't even telling them that they murdered the Son of God. That just made them mad enough to grind their teeth. What made them murder Stephen was that he knew that God was real. God was not a pattern, a place, a way of life, but that he opened his eyes and saw God and said, I can see him. He's alive. What brought on their murderous rage was seeing Jesus and acknowledging that God was alive. Angel face looked into the face of Jesus. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You thought that God dwelt in the temple. This is the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. The only keeper of the law. Stephen saw the God that these people thought they were protecting. And he knew that God was real and they couldn't stand it. A friend of mine is a priest in Seattle, and he was telling me recently about uh, visiting uh, a family who had lost a child. And so we were talking about it and just how awful and, and hard and heavy it is. And he said over text, he said, yeah, you always know you're walking into an unbearable sadness. But when God's presence just comes into the midst of it, it is very holy. And he said this, he said, it's like, God, you're real. You ever had that moment? You're like, I thought God was real. And then this moment, I was like, oh, you are real. You're really comforting someone who is facing death. And here's how you know it was true with Stephen. It's how he dies. He sees Jesus's face and he becomes just like Jesus. He says, Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like when Jesus was on the cross from these same fools. Fools like us. And Jesus said, oh Lord, I, I give you my spirit. And when Stephen fell to his knees under a rain of bricks, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus at the cross before breathing his last, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Stephen became compassion because he saw Jesus. Stephen became mercy because he saw Jesus. And here's the question. What must Jesus look like that if you saw him, it would make you this kind of person? How beautiful must Jesus be that if you saw him, it would make you forgive the people who are actively murdering you? Because when you see Jesus, and I mean really see Jesus, you either see the end of everything you know, or you see the path to new life. And I'll end, I'll end here. Because y'all probably tired of getting yelled at, huh? My band got the power cut off that one time for saying that God is dead and no one cares. Stephen got his life cut off for saying God is alive. Because if God is alive, he might just destroy your temples and change your customs and upend everything that you hold dear. And that can drive you to plug your ears and kill the messenger. Or it can drive you to this beautiful face. Now, here I am. I still do love Nine Inch Nails, by the way. Had a season. Put them away for a minute. Brought them back out. But it's crazy that after all that time, I'm pleading with you to believe that God is real and that he is alive, that Jesus is alive, that he really rose from the dead, that it's all real. And this guy, Saul, is approving of it all. He's going to see Jesus' face. And he's going to spend his whole life telling people that Jesus is alive. And he's going to get killed for it. But that song, I know, is at least half wrong. And this is the last thing I'll say. It is wrong that God is dead. God is very much alive. So Trent Reznor was wrong about that one. But the question is, you know, the song lyric goes, God is dead and no one cares. God is alive. Does anyone care? He's very much alive. This is a moment to decide. Is it safety or freedom? Will you have life your way or have God? The living God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, you are looking at us now that beautiful face. And you smile on your people. And you put out your hand toward us and invite us to life with you. A life that you purchase for us because of the murderous rage 
and you are alive. And Lord, I want to see your face. Sometimes I feel like it's just at the edge of my awareness that if I turn, that I will see you. And Lord, I just pray that you help us to do that as we come to your table, as we sing a few more songs. Would you meet us and shine upon us that our face would look like the face of an angel after having seen you. Pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. As we come to the table,